I'm my loyal listeners. Today, I wanted to give you a little bit of good news. Um, if you put in podcast 35, it's a code that'll work on my site through the end of April, and you can take advantage of some of my greatest and best items. The whole site is available to you. So I know shopping might seem crazy at this time, but that's how we pay the bills. That's how we keep all of our employees employed and stick around as a business. So I definitely and always appreciate your support. Thank you. Hi, everyone. It's Rebecca. You're listening to Superwomen. Today's guest is Ariane Duggan, the founder of D'Artagnan, which you're going to be like, huh? Why is she interviewing someone who is from a meat company? But guess what? I think it's really important what we put in our bodies and what those animals are raised and uh, the future of our health and planet depends on people like Anne and what she's doing. So I was really happy to dive into her industry and learn about what we can do if we are eating meat to be more responsible, both for animals, the ground we live on and ourselves. Take a listen. So today I have the pleasure and I'm so excited and I'll tell you a funny story about how I even got to be able to interview uh, my guest, Ariane Duggan. Yes. The founder of D'Artagnan, one of the most prestigious, humane protein and meat producers in the industry. I found her at my local, uh, it's not a bodega. I really go there all the time when I run out of cream or milk or something for the kids. And I have low expectations of the meat they have, but I was, I only buy grass fed or organic Uh, meat and they had it and it was delicious. And I put it on my Instagram stories. And then there was a dialogue and I said, I would love to, once I found out you were a woman, uh, I was like, oh my gosh, I want to interview you. So thank you for doing the show with me today. Man, no, thank you very much for having me. So I'd love to start a little bit from your roots. You've been in the food industry or you were brought up in the food industry. It wasn't what you set out to do. So will you tell me a little bit of your history and your father's company and what he founded? I'm the seventh uh, generation in the food business in uh, Gascony. Gascony is in the southwest of France. That's the region where we live to eat and mm. not the other way around. I live to eat. <laughs> <laughs> and so um, he had a famous restaurant. He's retired now. He had a two Michelin stars restaurant. And he's the one who put on the menus... Uh, of all of France after he created it, something called Magret. Magret is the breast of the uh, the duck that is fatted to get the foie gras. And so in Gascony, we're really big in uh, all kinds of poultry. So the ducks in question, the geese, uh, but also very good uh, chickens, guinea hens, quail, game birds. Uh, people go hunt. Right now it's the wood pigeon season. So... None of the guys are at work because they called in sick because they are hunting the yeah. wood pigeons and also uh, mushroom hunting and, and game meat, venison, wild boar. So I was born into that restaurant. It was a small, it still is a small hotel restaurant in Osh, the capital of Gascony. And with my brother and my sister learning the ropes and helping when, when we needed to help. Um, and that's how I was brought up with the, uh, I guess the, if there is one main thing that I learned from that was the respect of the ingredients. That's how my father, who was a well-known chef, still is, treats the, uh, the cooking 
the most important thing is the ingredients. And in animal proteins, the most important thing to have a good ingredient is to raise the animals the right way. Mm -hmm. And the right way, basically, it means artisanally, you know, small farms, so that the farmers actually know their animals, understand when something goes wrong or is kind of off, um, never treats them with um, medication um, as a prophylactic. But, you know, of course, you, you treat an animal if an animal is sick, but not no growth hormones, no antibiotics, no medication just to accelerate the growth. Plenty of pasture. Heritage breed when you can, because that way they mature a little slower. And so the muscle develops slower and have some marble in it. And, and all that is, and the lack of stress, of course. So no, no pain, no stress, as little as possible getting to the slaughterhouse to get the best tasting meat possible out of that. That's the end goal. And so that's what I learned in Gascogne. And that's what I'm trying to reproduce here for now, the last 35 years. We're going to celebrate wow. our 35th anniversary. Wow. Yeah. That's amazing. But you didn't move here thinking you were going to carry on the family tradition. No, not at all. No, no. <laughs> I came to discover America. I loved America. There is this song in uh, France at that time. There was a pop singer singing in French, but literally, America, America, I want you and I will have you. You know, it's, a, it's difficult to translate, but it's basically that's what it is. And I, I really love that song. And I thought I was coming in the country of cowboys and horses. And uh, uh, it was a very romanticized uh, way of uh, looking at uh, the United States. But I came in and I, I really, I fell in love right away. And um, when you talk to expats, there are always those, a very violent reaction right when you arrive. Either you love it or you hate it. You know, there is no middle ground there. I came to be a journalist. I went to political science in Barnard College at Columbia University. Um, I wanted to uh, explore. I like to write, so I wanted to explore that. I thought that was a good way to go into journalism school at Columbia University, which is uh, one of the most famous um, in the world. Um, so that was one push. And um, on the other side, I knew that... I was not going to take over my uh, parents' uh, business. Uh, my brother, one year younger, was destined to be the one taking over the business. And did you even want to at that point? I don't think I realized how unfair it was, except right. probably in the back of my mind somewhere. Right. But no, the, my my whole drive was to show them, you know, the family, the friends, that I could do something on my own, that, that I didn't need the aura of the family uh, to make it. But it, it was normal. At that time, it was really the, the boy is going to take over, not the, not the girl, because the girl is supposed to marry somebody and follow that person. Wow. You know, it was, uh, it's not that long ago, but yeah. it was really uh, the MO. So, yeah. so you said, okay, I'm going to move to New York, be a journalist, I'll show you. And then how did you, what happened that the journey sort of not ended up obviously working, having your parents' company, but it's in a similar field? Mm -hmm. That was all luck, all <laughs> circumstances, all luck. I needed a part-time job to pay for my studies. 
um, I ended up in uh, working in a little charcuterie on uh, 13th Street called Les Trois Petits Cochons, The Three Little Pigs. <laughs> I was there all summer. At the end of the summer, I didn't gather enough money to actually pay for the tuition. Uh, my parents did not really understand the tuitions in America you know, and how expensive it can be. Uh, so they, they were not uh, ready to help. And um, in the same time, my bosses, they were two partners, asked me to stay and proposed to me to um, uh, give me a, a lawyer to prepare for the, uh, the green card and the proper visa to work, etc. And that's how I went right back in the food business. Wow. I stayed with them for five years. It was fun. I made a lot of mistakes. I learned from my mistakes. In the same time, it was a thriving business selling pâtés to other uh, retail stores around. Until one day, two guys arrived with a foie gras. And foie gras was something that I didn't miss until I saw that it was there and that I hadn't eaten it in the, uh, the, the last five years because there was no fresh foie gras in America. There was no farm raising ducks or goose for foie gras in America. And those two guys were going to start that. So to make it short, I tried to draft a contract uh, for... Uh, my bosses to be the exclusive distributors and how to uh, use all the parts of the animals for the pâtés and to make rillettes and smoked duck breast and confit of duck, of uh, the leg, all kinds of things like that. Demi-glass with the bones, duck fat to render, to cook things. It didn't work out. My bosses didn't want to go into it. And that's that day, coming back from the farm where uh, they didn't sign the contract, that was when I decided I need to start my own company. Wow. And so what was the beginnings of that journey like from naming it D'Artagnan? I'm sorry, my French is terrible. No, no, it's I'm good. I'm a quarter French. I should be able to say something. <laughs> <laughs> from the starting it to convincing, like how did you, how were those first few years? So... I guess, you know, today we have much different ways of looking at things and uh, you have Kickstarters and you, you, you have ways of fundraising that, are, uh, that did not exist at that time. Uh, 35 years ago, I, I knew, I was convinced that that was the future, that that was a great thing happening in America. In the same time, I could see that there were farmers starting to really develop better products, uh, better poultry. And I was welcoming that because when I arrived, that was the one thing that I was very sad about, is not being able to have a good chicken. And so I convinced um, a friend of mine, George, who, had, who ha I had met at International House uh, at Columbia University. I had convinced him to come and work at the Three Little Pigs with us. And there we were five years later, this opportunity. I told him we have to go and do this together. We know we work well together. We've done that for five years now. Let's go. And um, he said yes. Uh, he took a couple of margaritas, but he said yes. <laughs> so, so here we are, starting from nothing. Uh, he borrowed some money from his uh, mother. I had $7,500 savings. Wow. He took So he put the same amount in there. We started with $15,000 and the, the day we opened, we had $35 left in the bank account. Wow. Yeah. And what did you open exactly? 
So we opened a, a warehouse, refrigerated. We had found a corner that was difficult for a... It was a guy who was doing fish and he had a refrigerated corner that was a triangular, so he couldn't go in there with his forklift. So he gave us that. I mean, he rented us that. And the minuscule office next to it uh, in Jersey City. And so we started the distribution of that uh, duck, wow. that foie gras. And right away we saw we couldn't survive just with that one product. So we went into, we went and begged farmers around to give us good chickens. And at the time it wasn't even a question of organic or free range or heritage. It was just, please, good, you know, please give me a good chicken that was running around and that was not confined. And little by little we, uh, we specialized and uh, got our specs in order, but that was the beginning like that. And so we started going to chefs and we were very, very lucky. Chefs at that time were just coming out of the first, you know, Johnson and Wells, the CIA, Culinary Institute of America, French Culinary Institute. All those schools started to specialize and sending out professional chefs, young, dynamic, ambitious, who didn't want to stay in that basement kitchen in the restaurant, but wanted to come up and create new recipes and uh, be respectful of the ingredients. Yeah. So we were there at the right time with that. Wow. So one thing I want to talk about a little bit is the, you know, if you're a vegetarian, this episode is probably not for you, or if you're a vegan, this episode is probably not for you. Um, but the importance of ingredients, because I think that people see the price tag of free range or organic and they go, oh, I can't afford that. But I feel like you're going to pay for it in your health later on, right? You're going to pay for it somewhere if you buy meats that have been pumped full of hormones. Um, also, that they don't taste as good, right? They're not as happy. And so- right. How has the journey been over the last 35 years? It's sort of sad that you didn't used to have to label things like that, but now you do because mm -hmm. we don't know where our food is coming from. Usually it's factory farmed and I've made the decision I'll pay up front so that I can be healthy later. But what has that journey been like in terms of how do you stay your course? How do you weather through the times where people just want cheap, easy protein um, or these trends and other things? Right. For good or bad, I didn't have any marketing um, uh, background, and that was the that wasn't the point at all. The point was we were on a mission, and the mission was to get the best meat protein possible on the plate, and and now mushrooms, but nothing else. You know, we always focused, and I beg to differ. I think vegetarians would like this podcast because we are going with some of them. We are going the same way every time I talk to vegetarians not every time, but most of the time, it's not that they don't want to eat meat, it's that they don't want to eat bad meat. Totally. And it's true, to, to it's difficult to differentiate in America today. Yeah. And we have the status quo that shows that it is perfectly okay for a fast food to offer a hamburger at $1. And when you think about it, for $1, $1.50, even $2, how can you raise an animal to put that amount of beef in, in that bun and make it that cheap. Cardboard. Yeah, it's, it's not possible. <laughs> That's what I tell my kids, it's cardboard. <laughs> it's, it's not possible. Right. And, and so for your health, but also for the health of the soil, the earth, the, uh, the carbon uh, capture, for the health of the farmer 
who's making, who's raising that animal. All those things are uh, in the negative when you go to a fast food place. Right. We are not paying the right price. So somewhere along the chain, before we get to eat that burger, somebody else is paying, whether it's the earth, the farmer, Who's, you know, who doesn't make a living out of that, who has to go with commodity uh, um, fluctuations, the, the pollution, uh, the slaughterhouse, etc. And so it is very, very important and more so than ever to understand where your meat comes from and to make sure that you buy from small farmers. That's the most important thing. Yeah. The, the people who respect what they are doing for a living. So we talked about earlier that um, I watched The Biggest Little Farm on some airplane ride I was on, and I fell in love with the idea. It's so much hard work, so I don't think I could do it. But the idea of how they respected the land, how they've grown things, and you shared with me that you're going to be doing something. Yes, yes, yes. My uh, my daughter um, graduated from Cornell, food science and um, hotel management, and then she went to architecture school and she graduated from that. And so she's with me in Adventure and we're going to, so we just bought the farm uh, wow. two weeks ago. So we need to clean up and start designing and put the surveys and the zoning applications and all that stuff. But the idea is to have um, a foundation, a farm that will innovate in sometimes crazy way, but this is how you innovate, you know, with technology. Um, but make sure that we absolutely respect the biodiversity as much as possible. So total polyculture in a permaculture kind of a way where you have rotation of different animals, rotation of different cultures, so that the soil gets enriched instead of depleted. Of course, not using any chemicals whatsoever in the farm. We'll try to have a little food stand, maybe a little cafe to, so to, to teach uh, and to educate uh, the kids and the families around. But hopefully to uh, advance in the animal husbandry uh, way and maybe to discover some new ways to uh, um, make it better and always to improve. That's great. So what for you has been some of your times for you where you felt like, oh man, I don't know if I can come back from this in your journey? So in the journey, starting beginning of 1985, every day for one year, either I or my partner would tell the other, that's it. Here is my 50%. I'm leaving. <laughs> Bye-bye. And the other one would say, tomorrow, okay? Just stay one more day, just come back tomorrow and we'll talk about this tomorrow. And the next day, it was the other one who wanted to quit. Oh it was tough. I mean, the first year, you have to realize we have no cash flow whatsoever. Right. So we couldn't pay ourselves at all, nothing. We were eating the samples uh, at the end of their life, I must say. Uh, it was really tough. And there were some very, very nice moments that were so much nicer just because it was tough to begin with. And yeah. uh, I remember in particular uh, a, a chef who, a chef owner who's not here anymore. His name was Robert Mezen. He had a, a restaurant called La Cremaillère in Westchester, New York. I went to see him and everybody was telling me, oh, you're going to see Robert Mezen. And everybody was frightened by him. He was a very tough chef. And I went there huh? 
And I went there with samples that uh, I had used three days in a row in the subways, you know, visiting all kinds of uh, chefs. So my samples were not at their best, <laughs> I cannot say. I remember a baby chicken that was turning a little bit on the green side. And uh, <laughs> and I told him, you know, I, I explained the animal husbandry, how they were raised, the natural, the uh, also the calibration, because chefs absolutely need, you know, uh, consistency in the size. And I said, well, this is it, but you will you will get it fresh. Here it's, uh, it has uh, several days. And then he um, he uh, took his checkbook and he gave me a check for $1,000. And I said, what, what is this for? And he said, this is against future orders. And that was so amazing, you know. And he said, somebody helped me when I came here. Now it's my turn. And I saw so many of that, so much examples like that wow. of people who did that. The uh, the kitchen where we started to make our um, uh, terrines of foie gras under a USDA inspection, it was it was called Mexifrost. It was the family Armendariz coming from Mexico who decided that it was also their turn to help somebody else. And so we were allowed in their USDA kitchen, as long as we were not disturbing their flow of, uh, of uh, cooking to make whatever we, uh, we needed to make. That was amazing. I mean, that's something that without that, and you have, you are, you don't have money, you can't right. uh, have a USDA kitchen. So there are plenty of examples like that, that were pretty amazing of, of expats. Uh, Uniting. Having, yeah. Wow. Really. Yeah. And so when you say buy from local farmers, sometimes they don't, like you said, they can't afford to get it labeled organic or using non-GMO feed, right? But they're from small local farms. So what are the questions people might want to ask just so that they know they're getting good meat? Okay. Local has its limitation. Uh, we Today, we cannot eat everything local. You, you drink your coffee right there. It's not, you know, it's not from a local uh, coffee grower. Of course, local is better because it's it naturally is going to be less expensive to transport. So, of course, but there are some areas of the United States that are specialized in different species where you have a big culture and a heritage on that. And so we respect that. And that's where we go. To, uh, to get, for example, our pork is, got, is um, from um, Missouri uh, at the foot of the Ozark Mountains. They have a whole group of farmers raising Berkshire pork, which is a black pig, which is amazing, very marbled, needs to be outside all the time. But wow, what a, what a meat. And so, so that's where we get our uh, pork, for example. So... Local when we can, not necessarily, but when we can't, making sure that the chain of cold is respected. Small is just simply to say and to put a difference between an, an actual farmer, somebody who owns his, his land or rents it, and, but he's responsible for the animals he raises there instead of a factory farm that is owned by a big conglomerate right. who's putting employees there. That's the difference, yeah. I think. And if you have to go somewhere and start somewhere, that's where you start as a discerning consumer. Make sure that you buy from those small farmers. Yeah. I was having a a light disagreement with a dear friend of mine who was, you know, talking about, you know, animals and, you know, their their contribution to the carbon footprint. And I quickly fired back being, well, I make leather, so I definitely have a lot <laughs> to say about that. 
but um, I don't make leather. I use leather. Um, I said, well, what about all this genetically modified plant-based mm. proteins that are, you know, killing our soil or entering our water supply or genetically modified things that hurt our health? Like there's a case to be made for responsible sourcing of animals and the meat that we purchase versus what these big factory farms. It's sort of like the fast fashion, right, in my world yeah. is the biggest polluters and the biggest harmers of the environment, I would venture to say, these factory farms. So do you get involved in trying to help change perception or do you just say, I'm putting out beautiful product and they will come? It's a little combination of both. Basically, we, we need... Um, I have a daughter. Uh, I need the earth to stay where it is and yeah. to stay alive. And I've read a lot of things about it. And I am convinced that you cannot have feedlots. If you have feedlots, yeah, you're going to uh, create large amount of uh, methane going up. If you have a farm that is under polyculture where you do uh, feed some grain to your uh, your beef, but in the prairie, and you treat your prairie the right way with the right amount of animals, not trying to uh, get the biggest yield possible all the time, you're actually going to regenerate the earth. And the earth, the soil, is a number one captor of carbon. Hmm. So if we were all doing that, if we were all taking care of the earth, planting trees, because that's a big, big part of it, having the humus from the trees on the topsoil, the worms inside, the galleries that they build will will prevent need for pesticides and, and fertilizers. And the, the soil has been doing that on its own for so many centuries. Right. We're the ones who messed it up you know, right after World War II, to try to get the yields uh, more and more and to, to have less expensive food. And that's how we're killing the earth, basically. So um, there are ways now to even lower even more the methane from uh, beef. And there are some experiments going on. I don't know if you read, but there is somebody in California trying a a certain kind of seaweed. Wow. And apparently 3% of that seaweed in their regimen will avoid all methane, it remains to be seen. You know, it's something that you have to uh, look and it's, um, it's a study, it's an experiment. We have to make sure it works before uh, uh, developing it. But there are ways to do that. But still, without that, I'm firmly convinced with small farming, polyculture farming, you will not have that the, uh, the problems that the, the factory farms are uh, developing with the, uh, the methane. On the other side, to your point, burning the Amazon to uh, grow uh, soy, uh, to put it in the plant-based burger is not a solution either. Definitely not. Yeah. yeah. So it's, it's all about doing your job right, trying not to destroy as you're doing. Yeah. yeah. So do you and your father ever talk about that you went out to go prove yourself to do something, you know, outside of the family and on your own? And and then you say, look what I built. It happens to be in a similar line of work, but it's your own 35-year-old incredible company. It's uh, at the beginning, we were almost not talking. Wow. I mean, he they didn't understand the need for the, the tuition and um, they didn't understand why I left. Yeah. And um, so it was, there was, it was very tense. I was basically talking through my grandmother. Uh, <laughs> and then um, as 
there was an evolution. And as they saw that my parents saw that I, I, I was starting a business and that I wasn't afraid of working hard for it. And uh, so I think there has been an evolution. And now it's very clear that they are very proud of me and um, we totally made our peace with it. But um, at the beginning, it was a little bit tough. Yep. Yes. <laughs> so one thing I like to ask all my guests is um, something we'd be surprised to know about you. Okay. Um, I like gummy bears. Mm, okay, yeah, yeah. I'll take it. And that I'm, I'm a little bit ashamed because, you know, it's not in the realm of good food. It's right. not in the line. But uh, I love that consistency. I love how it melts and not immediately in the mouth. And right. I don't know. And then what is a great piece of advice either you have learned over your 35 years since you started or just someone gave to you that you want to pass on to our listeners? Jula Child was a great uh, woman and cook and she helped us a lot at the beginning and she was really uh, a mentor. Wow. And she said something that I, I instinctively kind of knew already, which is you have to be super stubborn. You know, when, you, when you're convinced your idea is the right one, don't let go. Just go for it. Go for it. And, and especially, you know, we are women. There is this difficulty at the beginning just because of that. Uh, I don't want to emphasize it. I never used it, you know, to, uh, to, to, to differentiate because that's not the right way. If you want to say, hey, we're equal, then let's act upon that. We are equal. But I, I was lucky. Really, I was lucky because whatever bad prejudice against women the chefs had at the beginning, it was more than compensated by the fact that I had a French accent. Mm. And it's crazy, but it's the same thing. You know, you have a prejudice. Okay, so when you have a French accent in the cooking world, there is this prejudice that you know better than somebody else. I agree with you. So, <laughs> well, now I don't have this French accent anymore. So that... <laughs> So, I still think you know better than me. <laughs> <laughs> no, but um, uh, no, but all joking aside, it's uh, yeah that that's how it. And I and I, I think that's the most important thing. Don't look at gender. Don't look at uh, differences, human differences. You're in business. You're talking to a business person in front of you, either a seller or a buyer, you know, or or, or an employee. Or but that's it. Don't look at the gender. Don't look at uh, the differences that uh, that could make. And when you do that, you do that for yourself too. And it takes care of it. I love that. Ho hopefully. I love that. <laughs> Thank you so much. No, you're very welcome. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Let's have some foie gras. I know, right? <laughs> <laughs> that was Ariane Duggan. If you want to eat her meat, you can find D'Artagnan at all stores. I was shocked to find it at my local bodega. And I might not try the fagua, but I'm excited to hopefully give you a new resource to eat healthy. Thanks again. <laughs> <laughs>